This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello, how are you today? Great to have you along. Before the news headlines at half past 12 today, going to be talking about, well, the ongoing challenges really of finding workers, keeping workers, and then finding somewhere for them to stay. This is particularly in the resources sector, but obviously across all industries, finding workers and keeping them is still a challenge. We'll look at that just before half past 12 today. Just after the cross to the Bureau of Meteorology, barley growers here in Western Australia are really hoping that China will soon lift a suspension on barley exports from two of the country's main grain exporters. One of them right here in Western Australia, the state's main grain handler, the CBH Group. So CBH Grain still under suspension, uh, not able to export barley to China at this point, despite the fact that those tariffs have been lifted as of the weekend, as of Saturday. So we'll get into that a little later this hour. It is six past 12 and as you would have heard on the news, the WA Premier Roger Cook has confirmed his government will scrap its controversial Aboriginal cultural heritage legislation. Now, the laws have only been in effect for five weeks and were designed to avoid a repeat of Rio Tinto's destruction of 46,000-year-old culturally significant caves at Jukun Gorge back in 2020. Roger Cook says the legislation will be revoked and replaced with the original laws from 1972 with some key amendments. Put simply, the laws went too far, were too prescriptive, too complicated and placed unnecessary burdens on everyday Western Australian property owners. As Premier, I understand that the legislation has unintentionally caused stress, confusion and division in the community. And for that, I'm sorry. The original intent of the legislation changes in 2021 was to prevent another Duke and Gorge tragedy, and my government will deliver on that commitment. But our response to Duke and Gorge was wrong. We got the balance wrong, and what we did hasn't worked. It is crucial that we manage Aboriginal cultural heritage in a common sense manner so that we can move forward together as a community, so that we can restore confidence in our cultural heritage systems, strike the right balance, and provide the community with a simple and effective system. One that ensures all landowners are equal and all have one simple obligation, to protect the heritage of our state. This is a government that listens. That is why, based on community feedback and following serious consideration, I and the government have made the decision to overturn the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act 2021. We will restore the original act from 1972 with some simple and effective amendments. By reverting to the original 50-year-old legislation, we can reset, end all the confusion, and importantly, strike the right balance. 
We can ensure Aboriginal cultural heritage is valued and protected. And with simple amendments, we can deliver a common sense approach and prevent another incident like Duke and Gorge. Importantly, all WA property owners can continue to operate and manage their property just like they have for the past 50 years, without any fear of unknowingly disrupting cultural heritage sites. The exemptions which were introduced as part of the unworkable 2021 laws will no longer be required as every landowner is equal. And the changes announced today will end the onerous burden that was placed on landowners. A key point I want to make is that there will be no requirement on everyday property owners to conduct their own heritage survey. The State Government will start a long-term plan over the next decade to undertake heritage surveys of unsurveyed areas in high priority sections of the state and with the consent of landowners. The surveys will then be centrally held and published by government for the benefit of the state. Areas where development is, imp is imminent will be prioritised and the cost recovery model introduced for proponents who need to submit a management plan to the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Council will also be replaced. In its place will be a fairer, simpler model which will be established with industry in the coming weeks. The concept of local Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Services or LARCs will not continue. Over the coming months, we will transition away from the LARCs model and instead provide support to existing relevant native title groups to improve their capacity to work with government and industry. The important work of the implementation group that was set up in June will continue to ensure that we can transition back to the modified 1972 laws in a seamless way. Today's announcement is about listening to the people of Western Australia. It's about carefully considering the circumstances in front of us. The Duke and Gorge tragedy was a global embarrassment for Australia. Something needed to be done. No one can argue with that. But our legislative response was wrong. And what is required now is action and leadership. As Premier, I will always lead a government that listens and governs in the interests of all Western Australians. We are here to help and to deliver responsible government. That is the WA Premier, Roger Cook, saying the Aboriginal cultural heritage laws went too far, they got the balance wrong. The Premier apologising for the stress and confusion the legislation has caused. And that Act, the 2021 Act, is going to be overturned and the 1972 Act to be restored with some simple and effective amendments, says the Premier. What do you make of it? The text is 0448 922 604. A few texts already coming through. Your thoughts, most welcome, 0448 922 Trevor Whittington is the CEO of Lobby Group WA Farmers. Uh, Trevor, what do you make of this, this decision today by the Premier? Well, if any indication from the crowd out in front of Parliament House and how unhappy they are uh, at the rally they're currently at, um, uh, they are not happy with the old Act and um, we uh, certainly got serious concerns um, they're not happy with the new Act. We've got serious concerns about simply going back to the old Act without some clear exemptions in it for, for the farming community. What exemptions are you looking for? Well, the, the problem with the old Act is that um, not only does it hoover up everyone 
you know, on, on whatever size block you've got, but uh, there is now 40,000 uh, identified heritage sites across the state, the whole Swan Valley, the whole Gascoigne, the, the Avon River, Swags of Perth, um, parts of the, of the, of the Wheatbelt. And if you fall under that, under Section 10 of the old Act, you can't move a teaspoon of soil. So uh, without a exemption uh, to do that, and that's a massive amount of work, um, basically we, we're, we're in this back in the same position. So we haven't seen the, 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 the new amendments that the government's uh, proposing to put in place, because as usual, they're dropping on us at the last minute. But we suspect without a clear amendment that exempts freehold cleared farmland uh, from the old Act, we're back to square one. What Do you take heart from what the Premier's been saying? The words, the phrases that he's using, he said this is about a reset. It's about ending confusion, striking the right balance. And by that he means, you know, protecting Aboriginal cultural heritage, but also allowing property owners to continue to operate just like they have for the last 50 years without any fear of unknowingly disrupting cultural heritage sites. Yeah, look, we totally welcome uh, the Premier's backflip. We, we welcome the Premier's words. Uh, we welcome the fact that uh, uh, the State Labor Party has recognised they overstepped. Um, and uh, so we're all hearing, we're hearing all the right things. We would just like to read the wordings of the amendments to the old Act to um, instate what the Premier's is claiming he's wanting to see and what we desperately would like to see, which is be able to continue farming and operating as we have done for the last 50 years. Do you chalk this up as a win for the farm sector? Oh, we, you know, it's sad when we're down to a scoreboard. Look, it's definitely a win for the, for the West Australian community of, uh, you know, getting a government to finally listen that they have overstepped. Uh, we've lobbied really hard. Uh, the PGA's lobbied hard. The miners have been unbelievably quiet. Uh, the property guys have been quiet. We have definitely driven the charge and we fear that if we hadn't been so noisy and vocal that we wouldn't be where we are today. So the the farm sector should take credit for this decision, this backflip from the state government today? Oh, without a doubt. We've been banging on the, this very loudly for the last two years during the so-called consultation process, which is a complete sham. Uh, you know, we've revved up the the, uh, the opposition, the Lips and the Nats, because they were, you know, in fear of being accused of being racist uh, with all, the whole voice debate. Uh, it's been a, a lonely two years. And, um, you know, we've basically you know, turned the tide and, and uh, got the community energised and uh, we've seen the government listen. So, um, yeah, but it, but even win. though you're chalking it up as a win, I mean, it, from what you were saying earlier, it could be jumping from the frying pan into the fire. Uh, it is jumping from the frying pan into the fire because it was the previous government that recognised they had problems with the old Act. If the old Act was uh, enforced to the letter of the law, people like Tony Maddox and his you know, culvert across his 2J property, which will go to court early next year, um, there will be literally thousands of those prosecutions and there still could be. So we need a very clear clause that exempts freehold farmland where it's been cleared and disturbed from, um, you know, having to go through surveys. So that hopefully the government's got rid of all the larks and, you know, supercharged the incentive for them to run around and find heritage wherever they think there may be heritage or might be heritage or heritage involves. 
So we've got all that out of the road, hopefully. We now just need some clarity because the old laws, the biggest problem with the old laws, they were only applied to the miners and they ignored the rest of the state. Even though they did apply to the rest of the state, they just weren't, you know, the department wasn't running around prosecuting people, but now, they certainly had the power to do it. Now, Trev, you and others have gathered on the steps of Parliament House today, as you mentioned a moment ago, protesting against the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act of 2021. Considering today's announcement was flagged sort of late Friday afternoon, I imagine the crowd is is pretty small today, plus it's raining. Look, we had about 700 people, which is a really good turnout. You're quite correct. It's, uh, you know, it was big threats of rain today and still coming through. And the government was very clear to make, you know, drop on the community, the media, that, uh, and it's not all the media, selective media, um, that uh, they were going to backpedal. So today's exercise is very much about saying, here's three principles that came out of Katanning and we need a workable system. We, you know, we're happy to see Aboriginal cultural heritage protected, but not at the expense of farmers and um, you know, landholders above 1,100 square metres, and certainly not with a system that just supercharged, incentivised uh, small groups of you know, the 14 larks across the wheat belt to crank up and go out there and, and look for heritage at vast expense, between 10 and $20,000 per survey, on every one of the 7,000, you know, you know, privately held farms across the Wheat Belt and Great Southern, southwestern state. Trevor, good to talk to you. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Trevor Whittington, he's the CEO of Lobby Group WA Farmers and also calls out to Tony Seabrook from the Pastoralists and Graziers Association. He's at that rally on uh, Parliament steps of Parliament today. He's just not picking up at the moment. I'm sure he's caught up in a few conversations um, but we might catch up with him a little bit later. You are keen to have your say too on the text 0448922604. This from Stuart. Good news, but we still cannot trust the government on this matter. They will now find another way to do the same thing. And this from the Weather Wally who says, you've got to love it when common sense prevails. At least the Premier had the decency to say sorry and that takes guts. If only all politicians owned up to their mistakes. If they did, they would garner so much more respect. So any farmer who has never made a mistake or made a bad operational call on the farm can be the first to gloat over this change. This includes the heads of PGA and WA Farmers. Otherwise, be grateful it has happened. Move forward and get on with farming. The text is 0448 922 604 19 past 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. We'll get to the news headlines at half past 12. And one of the biggest employers in the goldfields says finding workers and keeping them is still one of the biggest challenges facing the resources sector. Stuart Tonkin is the Chief Executive Officer of Northern Star Resources, which operates mines in the goldfields, including the iconic super pit. He says the competition for workers is fierce. Look, it's a challenge to get staff, um, but more so to retain staff given the competition that's out there. So things have absolutely relaxed since the borders have been opened, um, but it's still now just that rush to to retain and and keep talent uh, employed. So are there still jobs going unfilled? Absolutely. uh, Not just for us, but I think everywhere, even across retail or, or, or other sectors. 
Um, so it is that challenge, but you know we're we're triaging where we you know need production staff. What staff is it? that you're still looking for? Because we're hearing this past week that um, the National Centre for Vocational Educational Research, they've said 20% is the increase when it comes to year-on-year for apprentices and traineeships. I mean, so is it that entry-level unskilled staff that are actually starting to fill jobs? What are you seeing? Yeah, look, it is it is anyone who's interested to be in the sector and, you know, starting their career early. So, you know, typically technical people or, or tradespeople do need multiple years of education before they even become, you know, trainees. But, you know, blue-collar workers that want to come in and operate machinery and be trained on operations, you still, even if you can get them, you need multiple years to get them up to a really competent level um, you know, and really productive level, and and that's the that's the the slow pace at which we can um, build back our workforce. And you say then, when you've got them, you've got to retain them as well. So how, how do you retain staff? What are you doing? Look, um, residential's key to us in Kalgoorlie. People's attractiveness to to come here, live here, um, have that lifestyle uh, in the region. Fly and fly out aren't sticky people. They tend to not care which airport they go to, um, so they do potentially chase you know roll and dollar. Um, and that's where the cross commodities, they are all booming at the, at the same time, whereas typically we're working through counter-cyclical, you know, through, through commodities. So if you're, I suppose, seeing those people starting to come to town, you've got to put them somewhere. How are you dealing with that? Look, that has been the challenge that the city's um, worked with and, and knowing that some residential homes have been used as uh, proxy um, FIFO residents. Building temporary accommodation for temporary, temporary jobs um, that allow us to build our operations or expand them, and then those those multiple long-term, you know, multi-decade kind of careers that those people are established and set up in in houses. So, opening up land, building new houses. I mean, these things are also compounded by the lack of materials or labour to build these things, or cost pressure and interest rates and people's confidence on mortgages. For Northern Star, it's showing multi-decade mine life at the super pit to give people confidence to want to be here and invest in the city. You talk about the longevity of the project, especially the super pit. Obviously, though, we've seen that drill rigs are starting to slow down and things are sort of starting to slow in that space. Are you expecting that there will be more staff available to come and fill some of those jobs in in the near term? Yeah, so it is that cycle, the expiration, then the production, then the processing, etc. So you'll start to see that, that move around. We've committed to a, a three-year, $1.5 billion expansion of the plant there. Um, and there's a peak of labour for nearly 500 people that will come for that construction work and then go away. But then you've got the production staff um, that stay there for, you know, for doing the mining for the future. So I think it, it is ebbs and flows and it's just managing those peaks um, and not everyone trying to build everything at the same time. Stuart Con- Tonkin, he's the Chief Executive Officer of Northern Star Resources, speaking to Tara DeLangraft. 24 past 12, or by late 2025, forecasts suggest WA's mining industry could be short of 36,000 workers to support projects that are either underway right now or in the pipeline. So where are all these workers going to come from? Well, some of them are coming from far away places that you would never expect. My name is Gregory Braga. I'm from down south in France, near Marseille. My city is named Montpellier. 
and I've heard about mining industry in Australia, that's what I came. A year ago, Gregory Brungard was an accountant in the south of France. Digging the balls are good, tires. Now he's driving trucks in outback Western Australia. Yeah, I just wanted to, to change the way of life and to get off of, of, my, of my desk, you know. I was in front of the computer all day long, just wanted to do something else. It's hard work, 12-hour shifts, two weeks at a time with a week off back in Perth. I like this kind of, I don't know how to say, rhythm or cadence. Work hard, play hard, so that's cool. As good a money as you were as an accountant? No, way more. Way more? Way more. <laughs> <laughs> Way more. <laughs> it's a gold mine, but the reality is lost in translation for friends and family back home. Really, I need to show some photos because when you're talking about like a mine site, they're all thinking about gold. They think that gold is all around the mine site and stuff, but it's not working like this. This is gold, you see? This is gold. And, but yeah. Microscopic, yeah. Microscopic, that's it. Is it a bit of a dream for you, for you to come to Australia? Was, did you always want to come here yeah. or is it just something you thought of later in life? I understand what you, what you mean. At the beginning, that was a dream. But what I'm, I'm living in right, right now, it's even better. Jim Walker. Uh, no, that's not Jim Walker. Uh, that's Gregory Brungard, who used to live in the south of France and he now calls WA's Goldfields home. In fact, he does, when he's in Perth, he does live in Scarborough and hits the beach much of the time when he's back here and not working. He was catching up with the ABC's Jared Lucas. You can read more of the story. It's online right now for you. Search Resources Worker Shortage ABC. Resources Worker Shortage ABC to have a read through Jared's story and uh, check out some nice photos there of Gregory too. 26 past 12. Well, the big news that we've been talking about since the top of the hour is the fact that the WA Premier Roger Cook has confirmed his government will scrap its controversial Aboriginal cultural heritage legislation and the plan is to revert back to the 1972 Act. That's going to be restored and there's going to be some simple and effective amendments made to it. That's what the Premier says. He says it's time for a reset to end the confusion and get the balance right. So protecting Aboriginal cultural heritage, but also allowing property owners to continue to operate just like they have for the last 50 years. What do you make of it? On the text 0448 922604. Peter in Albany says uh, the government that the Premier says listens also ignored 30,000 plus petitioners. Tony Booty has to leave Cabinet A new process for a better act must start and we need a full parliamentary inquiry to discover how a government department handled this so badly. Uh, This too from Paula, who says, if it's so simple to change the 1972 Act, why didn't they do that? The cost, frustration and worry this government has caused landholders is awful. McGowan jumped shipped before all of this happened. Question... Did the federal government have anything to do with this? It lasted 39 days. Does the government really know what it's doing? Jack says farmer groups are disingenuous to take credit for overturning the Act. It was the thousands of landowners, local governments and real estate developers who pressured the politicians, plus the federal government concerned with negative impact on the voice referendum. 
Also, there's a lot of text coming through on this subject, this too, saying your correspondent was wrong in that when farmers make mistakes, they pay their own penalty. When politicians make mistakes, others pay the penalty. If you want to be part of the conversation, do it now on the text 0448 922604. In a moment, there'll be an update from the newsroom and then we're going to talk about barley exports to China because WA barley growers are really hoping that China is going to lift a suspension on barley exports that still applies to two of the country's main grain handlers. And the state's main grain handler, it applies to CBH Grain and it also applies to Emerald Grain. And that suspension is still in place despite the fact that China announced it's dropped those 80% tariffs on Australian barley, uh, which happened on Saturday. So the tariffs have gone... But those two suspensions still remain in place, one on CBH Grain and one on Emerald Grain. We'll talk to Mark Fowler, President of the Grain Section with WA Farmers, shortly here on the Country Hour. Firstly, though, Tabarak al Jarud is in the studio with the latest from the newsroom. In the headlines, the WA Premier Roger Cook has confirmed his government will scrap its Aboriginal cultural heritage le- legislation. The laws have been in effect for only five weeks. Mr Cook now says the laws went too far, were too complicated and placed unnecessary burdens on property owners. He says the legislation will be revoked and replaced with the original laws from 1972 with key amendments that will end the confusion and strike the right balance. Neighbours of a woman found dead in her home in Perth's northeast have expressed their shock. Emergency services were called to the property on Burkitt Street in Bedford about five o'clock yesterday afternoon. A man has been arrested and is being questioned over the death. And 19 Australian men have been charged with a total of 138 offences after an investigation into an international online child abuse network. It's alleged the men were operating across all states and territories and some went undetected for more than a decade. In WA, one alleged offender is facing five charges. More news at one. Tabarak, thank you so much for the update. 29 to 1. Still text coming through on the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act. Tabarak, just going through the details too. Simon in Albany says, love the retraction of the Heritage Act by the Premier. Start again and have another go and let's do it right. Hopefully the gun legislation reform group take notice of what happened and listens to the voters and does their job correctly the first time says Simon. That text is 0448 922604. Between now and the news at one, it's off to Muche again today for the results of the sheep market and also catching up with the Federal Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt. A few things to talk about with Murray Watt this afternoon. There's the lumpy skin disease and Australia's cattle trade with Indonesia and, of course, the decision by China to drop those tariffs on Australian barley exports to China. We'll get to that shortly. First, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Joey Rawson is here this afternoon. Joey, a little bit of rain in the metro area. Is that getting further out into agricultural parts of the southwest land division this afternoon? 
Yeah, no, it's certainly moving through to the ag areas. Blender, we've at the moment got a line of thunderstorms that stretches basically from, you know, Geraldton down to somewhere around Bremer Bay area. So there'll certainly be some showers in that. And, and that's the rain that dropped the decent totals uh, this morning. You know, we've had some falls around, you know, 20 to, I think, dwelling up had 38 millimetres. So um, there's the potential for some um, half decent falls, you know, through, you know, the Great Southern and, and Central Wheat Belt. Maybe around, you know, top ends around 10 to 20 millimetres if you're under a thunderstorm. But if you're not under a thunderstorm, it'd be more around that 5 to 10 millimetre mark. So um, it's not a bad front that's uh, moving through and um, but it does weaken quite quickly. So it's going to go through and, and things are going to settle down uh, by basically this evening. And then not a lot of rain expected tomorrow, maybe just the odd light shower on the south coast, but nothing really in that. But then as we track on to Thursday, Friday and Saturday, we have this uh, mid-level trough that's going to be sitting basically just offshore from uh, the WA coast. And it's just going to drive cloud and rain through most parts of the southwest land division blender so um, basically southwest of Kalbarri to Israelite Bay uh, for the next uh, you know well for Thursday Friday and Saturday there's going to be shower type activity the rain's going to be a little bit more emphasized in different locations through those days so um, for Thursday, um, 5 to 15 millimetres possible over the, you know, the Great Southern and Central Wheat Belt and, and mainly over the southern parts. As we track to Friday, um, the South East Coastal District will get about 10 to 20 millimetres and around 5 to 10 millimetres over the parts of the Great Southern and Central Wheat Belt. And then as we track on to Saturday, there's a potential to get maybe 20 to 30 millimetres um, through the Great Southern and Central Wheat Belt into uh, the goldfield. So um, bits and pieces falling over continuous days, Belinda. It sort of sounds like it, Joey. What about for northern and eastern parts? Is any of that rain getting into that part no, of the state? No, northern and eastern parts are, are basically going to be rain-free and, and the winds are quite light as well for the next four days. So... Um, yeah, quite settled conditions continuing up north, Blinda. All right. And this afternoon, any warnings about? Um, just our strong wind warning. So uh, we've got the strong wind warnings on the Perth and uh, Geograph Bay coast and a gale warning for the coasts around the southwest tips, so the Lewin and the Albany. And then we go into a strong wind warning for the Esperance Coast Belinda. Great. Thank you for that, Joey. It's 25 to 1. Richard Hudson here now with the rainfall results. Yeah, and in the northern and eastern forecast districts, the only tiny, tiny bit of rain was in the Kimberley with Derby recording two. In the southwest land division forecast districts, nothing recorded in the central wheat belt, nothing at all. In the lower west, one mil was about the top. In the southwest, a fair few places had rain, so we're going to go at 10 mils and above. Sorry, Mike, I'm not doing a backflip. We will have variable uh, levels that we're reading out. Acton Park, 12. Bunbury, 12. Cape Lewin, 16. Cape Naturalist, 10. Carlotta, 16. Chapman Hill had between 11 and 14. Collie, 12. Dardanup had 18 to 19 across a few locations. Dinanup, 12. Ferguson Valley, 20 to 22. Hentybrook 18, Jarrowwood 12, Carriedale 11, Manjumup 15, McAlinden 11, Mount Williams 16, Mile Up 14, Nanup 15 to 20, 
Will Garrup, 10. Windy Harbour, 11. And Yanmar had 17. Then in the southern coastal region, the most recorded was Querding, had three. In the Great Southern, a fair few places had between one and three. But above that, it was just Quail Up with eight and Riverdale with seven. That's it for the state. Great. Thank you, Richard. Uh, 23 to 1 here on the Country Hour. A few more texts to get through on the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act. Uh, The Premier scrapping that, going back to the 1972 Act with a little tweak here and there, making things a little more simple. In response to that, Ian in Cottesloe says, the Premier didn't apologise for the abuse of people questioning the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act, calling them racist dogs and dog vomit. Even Paul Keating didn't stoop to that level. The only consultation that took place was behind closed doors with the big miners, says Ian. This from Mike in Bajangara. It takes leadership to admit a mistake and apologise. Let's give the Premier credit for that. It is 23 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Uh, in a moment, we're catching up with the Federal Agriculture Minister to go through some of the key topics around at the moment, and one of them being around Bali and those exports to China. And WA barley growers are really hoping that China will soon lift a suspension on barley exports from two of the country's main grain exporters. As you know, last week, China dropped its 80% tariffs on Australian barley after a long-running and high-profile trade war between the two nations. But WA-based CBH Grain and Emerald Grain remain suspended from exporting barley to China. Mark Fowler is president of the grain section with WA Farmers. Mark, how significant a player is WA in the export barley market? WA exports, on average, three and a half to four million tonnes of grain. CBH um, usually accounts for about half of that. If China is keen to resume the trade, the barley trade with Australia, then freeing up CBH to be a part of that export task is an important part of that. So we hope that that will follow in due course. But wouldn't you have assumed that the lifting of the tariffs means that, you know, there would be this, you know, free flow of barley from anywhere in the country and that these sort of suspensions would have been lifted too? You have to remember that the ban that was placed on CBH and Emerald were was ostensibly done for phytosanitary reasons. So on the face of it, it's not supposed to be connected to the trade relationship. But, you know, of course, we think they're linked. So then is the removal of the tariff really a lifting of the tariff, but it's really still in place? It's still the same scenario that we had last week that we've got this week if one of the main players in the barley exporting game isn't able to export barley to China? Look, I would think that, I think if they've taken this step, that, that that step is, is is something that we'll follow. We understand in other markets things are starting as well and there are moves in the right direction. So you think in a matter of time, a short amount of time, that this issue with CBH and that suspension will be lifted? I'd always be very careful trying to assume what China's going to do and I'd be very careful about anything I say in that space, but that's the hope and, and the expectation. Hmm. What does it mean in the in the meantime, though, from a Western Australian grain grower perspective who, who you know, wants a good price for their barley? Well, I think people are probably holding off selling barley, hoping that, that, that this is going to happen. I think probably a, a part of that expectation was already built into the price 
before the announcement. And as soon as the announcement was made on Friday, the price jumped almost $30. So I think there's other players, of course, that barley can be sold to us. So I think for WA growers, they should feel happy that um, that this has occurred. There's there's obviously going to be other players that can go straight into China and start executing sales. And we hope that CBH will be able to join that group shortly. But I guess some caution will have to be um, exercised in this area with taking cargoes to China. I mean, that move on a phytosanitary front may mean there's pretty close scrutiny on that um, on that issue. So any any of the cargoes that go into China will need to be pretty pretty carefully managed, I think. So even if this suspension, which is on barley exports from CBH grain to China, is lifted, there's that level of caution there with that sort of phytosanitary concern still hanging there and it'll have to be <laughs> like primo barley to um, ensure that there's no issue at the other end. Is there really that much of a need to get back into the Chinese market, though, considering all the other market opportunities that have opened up over the last sort of three years or so? China buys 30% of the globally exportable barley. So they're a massive part of the, the demand curve. Not having them available to Australia has clearly had a pricing impact. Now, the trade's done well to find new markets in that time. I think we'll we'll need to make sure we keep those relationships up. But at the end of the day, if a premium price is offered, and it probably needs to be something that has a bit of a risk premium in it to account for the sovereign risk issues that we've seen um, in recent times. But if they pay a premium price, which they always have in the past, then I think they'll attract a lot of barley. Mark, it's good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Belinda. Mark Fowler, President of the Grain Section with Lobby Group WA Farmers. The state's main grain handler, the CBH Group, says it continues to work with the Australian government to have the suspension on barley exports from CBH grain to China lifted. The Australian government continues to make representations on CBH's behalf on this case. Uh, This too from Brian in Tambalup. Hi, Belle. China may have dropped the tariff on barley but CBH is the largest exporter and they're still blocked. All smoke and mirrors, says Brian. 18 to 1. Barry West farms at Coolan, about 280 kilometres southeast of Perth. He normally relies heavily on barley and he can distinctly remember how he felt three years ago when China imposed that 80% tariff. Oh, at that time, we had a lot of barley we'd just finished putting it in the ground and we were actually shocked they did it because we had committed um so yeah when it happened you know the price plummeted by 40 dollars a ton overnight basically and we probably had 50 percent of our program that was barley at the time uh and the problem with it was was at the time i suppose um we had too many eggs in one basket and it's taught us a real lesson there so talk me through the price difference. Talk me through what it was before the tariff, during the tariff, and I guess now a couple of days after it's been lifted. Uh, yeah, the price obviously plummeted. Um, it varied, depends on who was buying your grain, I suppose. But um, by plummeted, you know, $40 a tonne from when it sits around that 260 is quite a percentage. So it sort of became marginally profitable to do what we were doing. Um, so, uh, yeah, but within that sort of six-month period from sowing to harvest, the price came back to where it was because the marketers, and good on them, 
went and found other markets, which was fantastic. So what was that price? Well, it went back to that sort of 260 270 mark again. Um, that's feed barley price. If you get malt, we, we kind of try and get malt on everything, but um, percentage of hit rates probably sort of between 50 and 80%. Depends on the seasons a bit, whether we hit the malt price. So we kind of work on a feed price. And what was the malt price? A good question. Uh, mm-hmm. Two years ago, <laughs> um, I'm not actually sure. It was, it's usually sort of that forty, fifty dollars, sometimes thirty dollars above the feed price. Mm-hmm. So, depends on demand, obviously. But there's a big demand for malt now throughout the world, probably more than it was then. And I guess before the news was announced that the tariff was being lifted, how were you feeling about barley in your crop? Uh, we pretty much. We dropped our program down percentage-wise between 30 and 40% barley, but it was a rotational thing. And being the price being back to where it was and the yields, it came down to gross margins for us. Um, wheat um, is pretty good gross margin. We, we are basically we're in the central wheat belt, but uh, you could call it the new barley belt, I don't know. But we, barley, gross margin-wise, is uh, probably better than wheat on the dry years particularly. And on our particularly lower wet country, a little bit of saline stuff in the valley floors, that's where we grow the barley. So we kept doing what we were doing there. Looking to the future now that China is back in the game, how do you feel? Um, I'm actually really glad for the growers of Australia, particularly WA. We export a lot to China. I actually feel uh, good for the Chinese people as well. They get the best quality barley in the world. So, you know, it's, uh, whether it be malt or feed, we have got the best quality grains in the world because of our climate uh, and our ethical standards for the way we grow and do things. So, yeah, I'm glad for uh, both nations. And so will you be sending any of your barley to China anytime soon? Well, it really comes down to the people we sell to. Um, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that buy our grain. Uh, obviously, they've got the end point where they want it to go, um, I would assume, if the price is right, it'll go to China and uh, that'll be a good thing. What have you learnt from what happened three years ago and how will you apply it in the future? I think we, uh, as growers and the buyers of our barley that supply the world markets, have learnt don't have all your eggs in one basket, which we should all know. You know, We've always said that throughout the years. And uh, But I think this has been a good lesson for all of us, uh, including the, the grain buyers. Spread your risk, spread your buyers, and uh, we need to keep the markets that we've picked up in this interim period. So we need to look after them as well, but it all comes down to price. Do you see yourself going back up to that 50% mark of your program being barley again? Uh, Probably not at this stage. We'll let this market settle down into what, see what it does. Um, It'll come down to price, but you can't chase price either, so... We pretty much stick to what we do as a rotational thing, what suits our soil types and our rotations. So, you know, we've we've upped our canola. The canola price has been very good. And we've been very fortunate the last three years. We've been very wet. So for us to grow good canola crops out in this area has been fantastic. In the end, how much would you say the, the China barley tariffs actually impacted your business in the end? Um, probably not a lot in the end. Um, it would have had an influence on uh, our all our communities, you know, such as our Coolan community and all the central wheat belt communities in the region. 
because when things like that happen, um, everyone pulls their heads in a bit, puts the checkbook in the bottom drawer, and you sort of that uncertainty, you start, you become a little bit more conservative. So uh, it definitely affects um, our agricultural supplies, it affects the machinery guys, it affects everyone. So, um, but we sort of came out of our shelves after harvest because things came back to where they were. Coolant farmer and Shire councillor. Barry West with Sophie Johnson. And Sophie's also spoken to some farmers in the Kojanup area who also rely heavily on barley. Pre the tariff being imposed, barley represented about 40% of their program. And for the last three years, that figure has dipped to around 30%. But now that the tariff has been removed, they're hoping to go back to the 40% figure again. Obviously, at this stage, it won't be going through CBH grain or emerald grain because uh, those two are still suspended. They can't export their barley into China. At this point, anyway, it could soon change. We'll watch this space. 11 minutes to one o'clock. Uh, now, time to catch up with the Federal Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt. And in a moment, he's going to talk about uh, the latest on the lumpy skin disease and Australia's cattle trade with Indonesia. But first, let's just hear his thoughts on trade with China because, like Australia's grain growers, the ones you've just heard from, he's very happy that China has dropped its 80% tariff on Australian-grown barley. Um, our grains industry is obviously a crucial industry for our whole country and particularly rural Australia. So to have those tariffs removed after a lot of hard work from both government and industry was a great day and I'm looking forward to those barley shipments resuming. But it wasn't like Beijing said, we're sorry, Australia, that we ever accused you of dumping or anti-competitive behaviour. They simply said they'd had a look at how much barley they had in the country and they no longer wanted to, to put that tariff on Australian farmers. Is that a bit disappointing? Uh, I'm not particularly concerned about what reasons China puts around their decision. We've always just been focused on the outcome. Uh, and the outcome that we've been after is having these tariffs lifted and that's what's now occurred. So that, I think that's great news. The government's been keen to point out its hopes for a similar result in the wine industry. But if China was to apply that same lens... Uh, it's not so desperate for Australian wine. The tariffs are even greater. Is it really reasonable to expect a similar result? I mean, it's not really apples and apples, is it? Well, I have to say the discussions I've had with Chinese government officials and certainly what Don Farrell has reported back to me from his visit to China is that there actually is a huge appetite for Australian wine in China and, and consumers are really keen to get Australian wine back in. Uh, our, our wine producers have started visiting China to get that market moving again. So, uh, again, I would be confident that China will come to the same position ultimately as what they did with Bar but would, we want that as quickly as possible. Would the Australian government need to suspend its WTO appeal for China to arrive at that conclusion? Uh, well, I guess that's a matter for China, what they, they, come, they come back to us with. Uh, what happened with Bali, of course, was that a draft decision was handed down by the WTO and that prompted China then to say, how about we talk? Um, we would like to think that we can get this resolved before we have to wait for a draft decision. We're ready to talk about this today. I mean, we have been talking about it do for months, but we can't even get on with it. Do you think it will be resolved before Christmas? 
I'd certainly hope so. I, I wouldn't want to put a time frame around it because a lot of this is obviously in China's hands. But uh, in every meeting that I and my count- and my fellow ministers have had with Chinese officials, we've said this is a crucial issue. We want it resolved as quickly as possible. Keeping with trade, the Indonesian government says that cattle that came from Australia have tested positive to lumpy skin disease, about a dozen cattle. When do you expect that those four export depots will be able to resume trade to Indonesia? Well, again, it's ultimately that be a decision for Indonesia, but we have already been talking with them about our desire to have that trade reopened. Of course, the live cattle trade as a whole to Indonesia is going on, but there are four yards that are currently suspended. Um, We've been very clear from the first moment uh, that this was raised by Indonesia that Australia is free of lumpy skin disease. The testing results are starting to come back and there's nothing that has come to mind that uh, makes us alter that view. So Um, is it fair to assume that this is not really a biosecurity issue, but perhaps perhaps a trade or a political concern? No, we, we remain confident that it is a biosecurity issue. Uh, obviously, different countries have different practices and expectations when it comes to biosecurity. There's been no indication whatsoever that this is a political issue and uh, and we want to keep it that way. And that's why most of the work has been done by biosecurity officials uh, on both sides of the ocean. Different countries have different standards about incubation periods and issues like that. But, but we're very confident that these cattle contracted LSD when they arrived in Indonesia Uh, rather than picking it up on the voyage or in Australia, because, of course, we are LSD-free. What do you estimate the cost of this suspension to those four export facilities could be? Hmm. Look, I don't have a dollar figure, but I think it's fair to say it's significant. Um, Of course, you know, we're talking about each of those yards being able to export in the thousands of cattle, and there already have been shipments that have been disrupted and suspended because of this decision. But those cattle could still sail. They'd just have to go through a different facility. They would, um, but we also do need to be careful that we don't end up in a situation uh, that further yards get suspended as well because cattle have been moved from one yard to the next. Um, we, and we, of course, the irony here is that we don't have the power to stop that from happening because the, the cattle don't have a disease. Agriculture Minister Murray Watts speaking to Kath Sullivan about a few trade issues affecting Australia's farm sector. Six minutes to one o'clock and as you just heard, Australia's winemakers have effectively been blocked out of China since well, 2020. Weilong Wines Australia is a Chinese-owned winery based in northwest Victoria. General Manager and Director Bruno Zapier says they started crushing wine grapes four years ago, just as China imposed a tariff on Australian wine. So in 2019, everything was normal. Then 2020, the tariffs were introduced. And from that point, we still operated normally, but we weren't able to export any of our wine to headquarters in China. But otherwise, we operated normally. We, you know, we took in grapes, we crushed, you know, we processed, etc. But we just couldn't export. The winery's plans was wholly and solely to export to the Chinese market. Weilong is China's third largest winemaker, or it certainly was back in 2019. Did you ever consider trying to find alternative markets for the wine you were making? Yeah, so the original plan was solely to export our wine back to our headquarters in China. Um, they obviously are uh, old winery um, that have, have um, existing uh, markets uh, within China. Once the tariffs were introduced, obviously that uh, meant that wine prices began to uh, decline. And so that made it difficult to access other markets. So initially there was some interest in doing that, but 
ultimately the prices were um, too low to really consider that as an option. The winery had quite big expansion plans over the years. Have they slowed down a little bit as a result of what's been happening? Yes, absolutely. The plans were quite large at the beginning, but since the tariffs have come into place, there's been no expansion of the winery. How much wine can you hold and what are you crossing? At the moment, we're nearly uh, at 100% capacity and definitely the upcoming vintage will be an issue if we can't move some wine, uh, as I think it will be for probably most wineries in the district. So, yes, we, we're in a bit of a sticky position come this next vintage of 2024. The federal Labor government has certainly had discussions with China and seem quite eager to improve relationships. Are you seeing that as a positive sign and do you encourage that to continue? Yes, absolutely. I think the uh, Labor government's approach has been significant and I think if they continue along that path, um, I think that the results should come. Bruno Zapier. He's from Waylong Wines Australia and he was speaking to Kelly Hollingworth. And China is still not officially taking any rock lobsters caught off the coast of Western Australia. And industry, I'm obviously hopeful that that situation can be resolved soon. Three minutes to one. You are off to Mushe for the results of the sheep market in just a moment. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. The murder of two FBI agents during a child abuse operation leads to multiple arrests in Australia. The Matildas knock out Denmark to stay in the Women's Football World Cup. With Sam Kerr off the bench, can the Australians go all the way? And you'll meet a young mathematician from rural South Australia who's preparing to travel to the US to take up a prestigious scholarship. Those stories are more coming up on The World Today. A couple of minutes away from the news at one and then, of course, The World Today. To Mushe now for the results of today's sheep market. Terry Birkin has been keeping an eye on the sale for you. Terry, hello. How did it go today? Morning, Belinda. Today we had 3,828 lambs, 2,772 sheep for a total of 6,600 and we're down from last week by 2,773 and I'll start from here. Hi Belinda, numbers were down from last week by almost 3,000 head today with reasonable lines of heavy lambs and mutton and the other line of light and new season lambs. Light and merino lambs going four to five dollars overall, but values across the remaining categories equaled last week's rates. Not all abattoir buyers were present, and feedlot buyers were quiet as well. However, there were a few new restockers actively bidding. New season store lambs started at thirty dollars, and trade weights selling up to one hundred and five dollars a head. Store lambs, both crossbred and merino, sold from fifteen dollars to fifty-five dollars, and again, both breeds and air freight weights were selling from thirty-five to seventy dollars a head. Trade lambs returned $52 to $100, while heavy lambs sold up to $120, and with not a lot of demand for ram lambs, as the heaviest only making $70 a head. Merino weather hoggets sold to $84, while merino ewe hoggets realised $81, and crossbred hoggets also reaching $80 a head. Bone ewes ranged from $10 to $43, medium ewes selling up to $69, and heavy ewes realising $98 with a fleece, while rams were consistently selling from $10 to $30 a head. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service at Mushay. Terry, thank you for going through those details. 
Uh, just before the news, repeating the top story today, you'll hear it all afternoon. The WA Premier, Roger Cook, has confirmed his government will scrap its controversial Aboriginal cultural heritage legislation. So what is going to happen? The legislation will be revoked and then it's going to be replaced with the original laws from 1972, just with some key amendments. News time, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.